Chapter 19 of Weapons of Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carl Henning. Weapons of Mystery by Joseph Hawking. Chapter 19 The Second Christmas Eve. The skies were clear when we left Turin, and the air pure and free. We had not gone far into France, however, when we found everything changed. It was snow, snow everywhere. On ordinary occasions I should not have minded much, but now everything depended on my getting to London at a certain hour. How slowly the train seemed to creep, to be sure, and how long we stopped at the little roadside stations. Simon did his best to cheer me while Kaffar furtively watched us both, as if in fear. I was silent and fearful, for I felt sure the Egyptian meditated escape. The laughter of the light-hearted French people, who were preparing for Christmas festivities, grated on my ears, for, although I had succeeded almost beyond my hopes, a great fear rested upon me that I should fail even yet. Especially was this realized when I knew that our train was hours late, and I knew that, did we not arrive in Paris at something like reasonable time, we should miss the express trains for England. When we got to the French metropolis, we were nearly five hours late. It was not to be wondered at, for the snow fell in blinding drifts, until, in some cases, the railways were completely blocked. The wonder was how we got to Paris so soon, when we considered what had to be contended with. Anxiously, I inquired after trains by which I could catch the boats for England, but the replies were vague. First, it was now Christmas Eve, which at all times caused the general traffic to be delayed, and second, the weather was so bad that to state times of arrival was impossible. It was now Wednesday morning, and I started from Paris with sixteen hours before me in which to get to London. Ordinarily, I should have had time enough and to spare, but everything was delayed and confused. I had thought of going back by Depa and New Haven, but a storm was blowing, and I knew that meant a longer sea passage. So I went to Calais, thus riding through one of the most uninteresting parts of France. It was five o'clock on Christmas Eve when we arrived at this little French seaport, and then it took us two hours to cross the straits, although we happened to be on one of the fast-sailing steamers. We had now five hours to get to Kensington. I was getting terribly anxious now. If there should be a breakdown, or if anything should happen to hinder us, we were so near and yet so far. Once I thought of telegraphing and telling of my success, but I refrained from that. I wanted to tell of my victory in person, and thus, if needs be, destroy Voltaire's last hope. The usual time for an express train to run from Dover to Victoria is about two hours, but it was Christmas Eve. Special trains were running, and passengers crowded on every hand. Thus, we were more than three hours in accomplishing the journey. The train swept into Victoria at a quarter past ten. There was one hour and three quarters to go to Kensington. "'This way to the Custom House!' shouted one of the officials. I had forgotten this part of the program, but I determined not to wait for my luggage. I would sooner lose it a thousand times over than be late in reaching Kensington. I accordingly got the keys from Kaffar and Simon, 
and pointing out the portmanteau to an official gave him a sovereign to see them examined and sent on to my address in gower street i hailed a hansom but the cabby refused to take the three of us upon which kaffar offered to go in another but i dared not risk him out of my sight so we got into a rumbling old four-wheeler and i offered the cabby a sovereign if he would get me at the address i gave him in half an hour couldn't do it for ten sovereigns sir said the cabby the streets as slippery as glass and as crowded as herons in a barrel i'll do it in three quarters for a quid your honour it was now nearly half past ten that would make it a quarter past eleven to me it was drawing it terribly fine but i consented if he were not spurred on by thought of reward short as the distance was there was no knowing how long he would be at length the cab stopped it was a quarter past eleven and as i got out i noticed that we stood in front of one of those tall noble-looking mansions which are so common in kensington wait a minute i said to the cabby i want to be certain this is the right house meanwhile i noticed that my constant friend simon held kaffar by the arm i rang the bell violently and a servant appeared at the door. Did Miss Gertrude Forrest live there? Yes. Was she at home? Yes. Could I see her? The servant was not sure, but would ascertain. Miss Forrest was then engaged. I stopped the man, for I did not wish to appear in the way that matters seemed to promise. Meanwhile, Simon had paid the cabby, and so the three of us stood together in the hall. I am an old friend of Miss Forrest's, I said to the man. I want to be shown to the room where she is, without her being apprised of my presence. I daren't, he replied. It would be as much as my place is worth. No, it would not, I replied. You would not suffer in the slightest degree. But there are several people in the room, he said, eyeing a sovereign I was turning over in my hand. How many? There's Miss Forrest, her aunt and Miss Staggles, besides a gentleman that came in early this evening. That gentleman's name is Herod Voltaire, I said. Yes, sir, that's the name. Well, I'll do as you wish me. I followed the servant while Simon kept fast hold on Kaffar. The man knocked at the door while I stood close behind him, and the moment he opened the door I entered the room. Never shall I forget the sight. Evidently, Voltaire had been claiming the fulfillment of her promise, for he was earnestly speaking when I entered, while Miss Forrest, pale as death, sat by an elderly lady, who I concluded to be her aunt. Miss Staggles also sat near, as grim and taciturn as ever. "'It's nearly twelve o'clock,' I heard Voltaire say, "'and he's not here. He dare not come. How dare he? He has left the country and will never return again.' "'But I am here,' I said distinctly. They all turned as I spoke, and Miss Forrest gave a scream. I had been travelling incessantly for forty hours, so I am afraid I did not present a very pleasant appearance. No doubt I was travel-stained and dusty enough. "'Who are you?' demanded Voltaire. "'You know well enough who I am,' I said. "'Begone!' he cried. "'This is no place for murderers.' "'No,' I said. It's not. No sooner had Miss Forrest realized who I was than she rushed to my side. Oh, are you safe? Are you safe? She said huskily. 
I looked at her face, and it was deathly pale, while her eyes told me she had passed sleepless nights. No, he's not safe, said Voltaire, and he shall pay for this with his life. Is it manly, I said to him, to persecute a lady thus? Can't you see how she scorns you, hates you, loathes you? Will you insist on her abiding by a promise which was made in excitement to save an innocent man? Innocent, he sneered, and I noticed the look of victory still in his glittering eye. Innocent, yes, as innocent as Nero or Robespierre, but you shall not come here to pollute the air by your presence. Be gone, before I forget myself and send for the police to lock you up. Uh, I long for vengeance on the man who murdered my dear friend. Then you will not release Miss Forrest? Never. Then I shall make you. You make me? He cried savagely. Meanwhile, Miss Forrest had clung trembling to my arm. Miss Forrest's aunt had looked fearfully, first at Voltaire, then at me, while Miss Staggles had been mumbling something about showing me out of doors. Yes, I said. I shall make you. You cannot. He jeered. I have it in my power now to lodge you safe in a felon's gaol and bring you to a hangman's noose. Ay, and I would too, cried Miss Staggles. You are too kind, too forbearing, Mr. Voltaire. Oh, leave me, cried Miss Forrest, clinging closer to me. I will suffer anything rather than you should be, be. Ring the bell for a servant, I said and Miss Forrest's aunt, trembling, touched a button close beside her. The man who had showed me in immediately answered the summons. "'Show my friends in,' I said. A minute more, and Simon entered, carefully leading Kaffar. Voltaire gave a yell like that of a mad dog, while Miss Forrest gave a scream of delight. "'There, villain,' I said, "'is the man whom you say I've murdered.' "'How dare you come here!' said Voltaire to Kaffar. Because I brought him, I said, to save this lady and expose you. Now where is your power? Where are the charges you have brought? Had he a pistol, I believe he would have shot me dead. His ground was cut from under him. The man who destroyed his every hope stood before us all and refuted his terrible charges. For a minute he stood as if irresolute. Then he turned to Miss Forrest and spoke as coolly as if nothing had happened. "'May I claim your pardon, your forgiveness?' he said. "'Believe me, lady, it was all because I loved you that I have acted as I have. Say then now that all is against me, that you forgive me.' She hesitated a minute before replying. Then she said slowly, "'It is difficult for me to speak to you without shuddering.' Never did I believe such villainy possible. But, but I pray that God may forgive you as I do. Then I will leave you, he said, with a terrible look at me. No, I said, you will not leave us so easily. No, man, that you are punishable by the law of England. How? You are guilty of many things that I need not enumerate here. Some Kaffar has told me about. Some I knew before. So instead of my lying in a felon's cell, it will be you. Then we all received a great shock. Miss Staggles arose from her chair and rushed towards me. No, no, Mr. Blake, she cried. No, not for my sake. 
He's my only son. For my sake, spare him. Your only son? Yours? cried Miss Forrest's aunt. Mine, cried this gaunt old woman. Oh, I was married on the continent when quite a girl, and I dared not tell of it, for my husband was a gambler and a villain, but he was handsome and fascinating, and so he won me. Herod, this son of mine, was born just the day before his father was killed in a duel. Oh, spare him for my sake. I need not enter into the further explanations she made, nor how she pleaded for mercy for him, for they were painful to all. And did I spare him? Yes, on condition that he left England, never to return again, besides stipulating for Kaffar's safety. He left the house soon after. We all felt a sense of relief when he had gone, save Miss Staggles, or rather Miss Voltaire, who went up to her room weeping bitterly. Need I relate what followed that night? Need I tell you how I had to recount my doings and journeyings over again and again, while Simon and Kaffar were asked to give such information as I was unable to give, and how one circumstance was explained by another until all was plain? I will not tax my readers' patience by so doing. This must be left to their own imagination. After this, Miss Walters insisted that we must have refreshments and bustle away to order it while a servant conducted Simon and Kaffar to a room where food was to be obtained, and so I was left alone with the woman I loved. "'Well,' I said, when they were gone. "'Well,' she replied, looking shyly into my face. "'I have done your bidding,' I said, after a minute's silence. "'I have freed you from that man.' "'Thank God you have,' she said with a shudder. "'Oh, if you only knew how I have prayed and hoped and thought.' and I had promised, too, I said. Will it be painful for you to keep? Painful, Justin, she cried. You know I will gladly be your wife. I will not write of what happened then. It is not for the eyes of the world to see. Tears come into my eyes now as I remember how her new-found happiness lit up her eyes with joy and how the color came into her beautiful cheeks. God alone knows how happy we were. We had been kept asunder by a cruel hand, and had been brought together again by long and bitter struggles, struggles which would never have been but for the love of God and the love in our hearts. Then, when our joy was fullest, a choir from a neighboring church began to sing. Christians awake, salute the happy morn, whereon the Savior of mankind was born. It was indeed a happy Christmas morn to us. The darkness had rolled away, and the light of heaven shone upon us. When I left shortly after, I asked whether I should come the next day, or rather when daylight came, and spend Christmas Day with her. You must not be later than nine o'clock, she said with a glad laugh, while my heart seemed ready to break for joy. I have nearly told my story now. The loving work of months is almost at an end, and soon I must drop my pen. I am very happy, happier than I ever hoped to be. My newfound strength not only brought me freedom from my enemy, not only enabled me to accomplish my purpose, but gave me fuller and richer life. Gertrude and I live under brighter skies than we should do had I not been led through so terrible an experience. Thus the eternal goodness brings good out of evil. Voltaire is on the continent. I do not think that he has ever returned to England. 
while his mother, who still lives the same kind of life as of yore, supplies him with money. It appears that she has means which were unknown to her friends, and thus she keeps him supplied. Of course, the relationship between them explains their being in league in Yorkshire. She was ever seeking to serve him then. She is still trying to do the same. She never speaks to me. But for me, she says, her son would have married Gertrude, and then she would have lived with her Herod, who would have been a country gentleman, not the poor outcast he is now. Kaffar has gone back to Egypt. He stayed in London a few days after the scene on Christmas Eve, and I gave him house-room in my old lodgings. But he tired of England, so I sent him back to Cairo. I think he is a far better man than he was, but I am not at all sorry that he dislikes England. He writes sometimes, but I never receive his letters without thinking of the terrible night on the Yorkshire moors, of the dark waters, the red hand, and the terrible struggle. Although I am now entirely free from any such influences, I cannot help fearfully wondering at the awful power one being can exert over another, how an evil man could almost deplete me of my own self, and make me see according to his will and act according to his desires, is to me beyond explanation. Truly does our greatest poets say, We are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Tom Temple is married and lives happily at Temple Hall. Tom attributes all his happiness to the ghost. He should never have had the pluck to ask Edith Gray to be his wife, he says, had not his lady love been so fearful. But you found no difficulty in getting her consent, Tom, I said one day at Temple Hall. Difficulty, laughed Tom. She said yes before I had stuttered out my little speech. I couldn't bear to see you in such an agony of pain, blushingly replied his happy little wife. Ah, well, Tom deserves his happiness because he makes those around him happy. Simon Slowden lives with Gertrude and me. He declared that he couldn't bear the idea of leaving us, after he'd gone through so much to bring us together. We are not sorry for this, for he has been an incalculable help to me in many ways. But for him, perhaps, I should never have the treasure I now possess, the truest and noblest wife God ever gave to man. But for him, I might have dragged out my weary life, disappointed and almost broken-hearted. Of course, this might not be so, but I know that Simon was one of my greatest helpers in making me the happiest man on earth. I will close my story with a secret. Yesterday, Simon came to me, looking very grave. If I remember aright, your honor, he said, I told you as I'd completely finished with all belonging to the female persuasion. You did, Simon. Well, I've changed my mind. I used to think after that waxinating business give me smallpox that I was done for. But there, Emily, the housemaid, have been waxinated, and she have had smallpox too. Well, to, seems to me as how it must have been special providence as have brought us together, as we read in the book of Job, and not liking to go gin providence, I axed her to change her name to Slowden. Well, Simon, what was her reply? She seed the force of my resonance in a minute, and so, as you may say, there'll be good brought out of evil, even the evil of waxinating, for it's given us both smallpox, and we both live. Our faces be a bit pity, but kisses ain't none the less sweet for that. And when is it to come off, Simon? I'm going to the registrar's now, Your Honor, so three weeks tomorrow, 
I shall be took in and done for, and all through vaccination. The End End of Chapter 19 Recorded by Carl Henning End of Weapons of Mystery by Joseph Hocking